please turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. Now, in week 8 of the Summer in the Psalm series, which, which I, ha- I just have to make this point again, coincided with what I'm told is the worst summer uh, in, a, in a long time. Uh, but this week we're in Psalm 2, and it follows on well from last week, which was Psalm 89, which was, remember, a psalm based on the hope of the Davidic covenant, as the nation of Israel struggled with their king seemingly going further and further into disobedience, that their rulers had become wicked, their kingdom had become split. Psalm 2 is very helpful once we've seen that wonderful purpose of the Davidic covenant, that there would be the offspring of David, ruling eternally. Psalm 2 is a very important psalm. If you read through the book of Luke, you'll see Psalm 2 quoted or alluded to almost everywhere. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. That's the one that's got the official title. But if you take quoted and alluded to, Psalm 2 is the most popular psalm and most used psalm in the New Testament. And that makes it very easy, thankfully, for us to understand how this psalm is to be read and understood in light of the finished canon of Scripture, all 66 books. The big idea, and I'm going to let this right out at the start, the big idea is that Jesus is the king who fulfills the psalm. Jesus is the king. The ultimate fulfillment of the psalm is found in Jesus Christ. However, we don't start there. We need to always first read the psalm. This is Old Testament. We need to always first read the psalm and read scripture as the original hearers would have understood it. Only then do we look at how it's used in the New Testament and how it is viewed in light of the finished Bible that we have in front of us. Makes sense, right? Psalm chapter 2. Why do... The nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge 
in him. This is God's word to us. If you have not familiarized yourself with Psalm 1, Psalm 1 is like that. You decide for a New Year's resolution that you're going to start reading the Bible and you start off in the Psalms and you read Psalm 1. You've probably read Psalm 1 once. But if you haven't, just familiarize yourself with it because it is tied to, inextricably linked to, Psalm 2. Acts chapter 4, this makes it very easy to work out who wrote Psalm 2. Chapter 4 tells us that Psalm 2 was written by David, King David. That is a full safe way of knowing who wrote it. And when we've said before that the Psalms are divided into five books, this is Psalm 2 is part of the first book of the Psalms. And it's commonly been thought that the Psalms are all just basically individual units. But we're beginning to see, and scholarship is beginning to see, that the Psalms all have themes that run across them. When we started this morning with our call to worship, it was in Psalm 146, one of the last Psalms in, in, in the, the book of five Psalms, the five books of the Psalms. In Psalm 1 and 2, and right in the early stages of the Psalms, there's a lot of talk about the king. But by the time you get to the end of the Psalms, like Psalm 146, like Psalm 147 that we've read, God is their king. God is Israel's king. And it says things like we read, put not, put not your hopes in man in whom there is no salvation, but trust in God. There's a a flow of thought. And we see that. That is entrenched here, right in the meaning of Psalm 2. I said that Psalm 1 and 2 are very much connected. Scholars disagree on the exact timing, but it is commonly thought that Psalm 1 and 2 were read as a unit, that they were one psalm together. And if you, you look at the Psalm 1, it starts off in verse 1, 1 with, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And you look at the end of Psalm 2, it said, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's two people that are both blessed. They form a unit. Psalm 1 speaks of the law, the blessed man who delights in the law. And that is very much the person in Israel who would have been understood as the blessed man who delights in the law, the first person they would have thought of was the king. The king. In Deuteronomy 17, we are told that the king had to write their own copy of the law of God down and read it every day. The king was a man who delighted in the law of God. We see that in Psalm 119, which we read on uh, New Year's Day, that David constantly said, I delight in the law of God. I care for it. So that is Psalm 1. And in Psalm 2, it talks a lot about the king. Those go together. If you could summarize, if you summarize what the nation of Israel was at this time, you would have called it a nation that delights in the law of God and has a king. Law and king go together. And both those themes are seen right there in the very first psalm. Psalm 2 is a 
Royal Psalm. Each one of the five books of the Psalms have things called Royal Psalms in them, which talk about the kingship of the King of Israel. And this Psalm specifically would have been read as a coronation Psalm. A coronation Psalm. That means that at the coronation of the King, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, all the way down to Jeconiah, this psalm would have been read at the inauguration, at the coronation. Johnny's laughing. This has absolutely nothing to do, purely coincidental, with the U.S. coronation. I'm going to call it a coronation because that's what it is uh, that took place yesterday. Absolutely coincidental timing. But this is what they would have read, Psalm 2. From last week we saw that God's promise to David, the Davidic covenant, was immense. That his line, that his kingship would endure forever. And the expectation upon that king was that he would delight himself in the law of God. That he would seek to live an obedient life before God. That he would seek to be a righteous man who rules well and justly. The king was to be the ultimate Psalm 1 man. Therefore, there is, if you see that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are kind of a unit, we get the picture that the king in Psalm 2 is to be the blessed man. Psalm 1 and 2 together, Psalm 1 and 2 together give us a picture of the ideal king of Israel. That's my summary. It gives us a picture of the ideal king of Israel. Psalm 2 is divided into to four parts. If you have an ESV, English Standard Version, in front of you, it divides it up nicely for you into th- sets of three verses. The first three verses, the nation's plot. The second three verses, God laughs. The third three verses, the king reigns. And then lastly, the psalmist warns. And the big idea is seen in verse 12. It is seen in the warning that the psalmist David gives. Kiss the son or perish. Pay honor to the son of God. We've already said it. That is the king. The king is the son. God is his father. Kiss the son or perish. Do not mess with God's anointed king. So let's start off in verse 1, which kicks off with, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord's anointed and the Lord himself. This is talking about the nations, Gentiles, non-Jews, who live in the promised land and around the promised land of Canaan. They made treaties with the king of Israel that they might live in peace, that they might not be at war. And they would sometimes have to live under God's rule. They made treaties that so that the king of Israel, a man like David or Solomon, would not come in and wipe them out. But it says that the nations rage against the king. They plot, they make plans. And we see the the word here, this word anointed. The king is the anointed one, the, the chosen one by the word of the mouth of God. 
God creates all things out of the word of his mouth, and he also anoints a king by his mouth. In the case of David, it was spoken through God's prophet, Samuel. And what this is very simply saying is that the nations, in seeking to make war and to undermine God's chosen king, the nations are actually at war with God. When you mess with God's king, you're messing with him at the same time. Why would they do that? Because this is an attempt to live in a world with no God. That is why they would do that. They hate the righteousness that God's rule brings. The people plot in vain, the psalmist says, to try to live as if God does not exist as a denial of reality. It is a foolish plan. It is a, a vain plan. And therefore, the people, the nations, try to burst, in verse 3, they burst the bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Hosea 11.4 helps us understand what that means, which says that God lovingly leads his people with cords of, of law and bonds of love. The nations say, let's break these bonds. Let's undermine this king. Let's undermine God's rule in the land of Canaan. And the nations are seeking to break this bond of love and rebel against the cord of God's law which leads the people in righteousness. And that's important for us to understand when we look at God's law. Every time God's law says, no, don't do that, or yes, do it this way, it is an act of love. It is our creator saying, I've created you, I know how you were designed to live. But the Gentile nations don't like that. They don't like being told what to do. I'm sure we ourselves can identify with that, and we can see that very clearly in our culture. To say no is to be unloving. But no, when God says no, it is a demonstration of love. And this is nothing new. It goes right back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Adam and Eve created in this perfect garden, and they plot against God. They want to be knowledgeable. They want to live an autonomous life without him. So they plot against God's rule. Exactly the same thing playing itself out over and over again. What is the response of God then to any plots to overthrow him and his king? Laughter. Laughter. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. It's that sort of, you cannot be serious kind of laugh. It's like if my son tells me that he's going to beat me up. It's like, no. You can't be serious. That's not going to happen. It's like when England tell the old blacks that they're going to beat them. It's like, no, not going to happen. You know, that kind of laughter at the Tower of Babel, that story you remember from Sunday school, years in Genesis chapter 11, the nations build a tower and they're trying to reach up into to the heavens, they're trying to reach up to God. And yet in reality, I don't know how big that tower actually was, but they barely touched the sky. God laughs. 
I listened to a conversation uh, last week on a podcast, and it was super interesting. And it was like, it was, they were talking about how do you determine the most powerful military general in the world? Who's got the most powerful army? Who's the most powerful general? Who's the best leader? The one that people should be scared of. And the consensus was, was that the most powerful man wasn't the one who's going around everywhere, bombing everyone and picking wars with everyone and picking fights and just generally trying to assert himself. The most powerful one was the one who just says, go on, I dare you. I'm not going to fight. You want to fight with me? Go on, come on. So it's not someone who's and like a little angry teenage boy picking fights with everyone, but it's someone saying, I'm going to win and I'm going to keep the peace without firing a single shot. That makes sense. God has that strength. God has that strength. It's very clear here. Those who rebel against him, those who plot against God, those who seek to undermine him, are doing so while breathing his air. Have you thought of that? He's keeping their hearts beating. Dead. Like, it's it's just pointless. They're allowed to rebel against him because he allows them to. And he can laugh in response to their challenge because it is worthless. It's worthless. A pastor friend of mine once put it this way, man is not so much able to raise a challenge against God, let alone a revolution to overthrow him. I agree with that. But God's response to this rebellion and this challenge and this plotting is very interesting. And we see it in verse 6. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's response to the nations rebelling against him and seeking to undermine him is his response is to set his king on a throne to rule and reign. That's his response. In the land of Canaan, it was to put a king in the promised land on the throne. That's his response. That's the plan of scripture and we see this in fulfillment in Christ his plan is to put his king on the throne in the new Jerusalem Zion so the king reigns God has appointed Israel to be a special nation a chosen nation in a land of blessing Canaan and he's put a king over them God's anointed, when the psalm is written, is the man who wrote the psalm himself, David. God, that's who God's anointed is. That's his response. His response to all the military powers of the world, all the kings, all the people, all the wickedness, is says, I'm going to put a king on a throne. And we see in that, and I'm reminded of the verse, my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's what God's doing. His strength is demonstrated in the king sitting on the throne. Not the most impressive king. Not the strongest warrior. Not the largest army. But a king sitting on a throne. And we see this so clearly. 
that in 1 Samuel 16, David was anointed king by Samuel, the mouthpiece of God, and when he had not yet assumed the throne, David defeated Goliath. That shepherd boy defeating the biggest warrior of one of the fiercest armies on the face of the earth was a demonstration of God's power being made perfect in weakness. And the point of all of that is that God is saying, the Lord that laughs is saying, the ultimate strength of my people rests not in the impressiveness of my king, rests not in the strength of the army, rests not in their wealth. Their strength rests in the fact that I, God, am their strength. That is God's display of strength. That as long as the king, as long as the people, God's chosen people, rely upon him, they are strong. The moment they stop relying on him, they become weak. And he says to this thing, King, God, the Lord, says to this king, You are my son, I will make the nations your heritage. This is saying, those that plot against you, those that fight you, I will give them to you. And so you might be wondering at this point, thanks, John O, for the history lesson. What on earth has this got to do with me? Well, there's a warning. There's a warning. Kiss the son lest you be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The psalmist is warning that all who are in opposition to God and his king you got one thing you need to do. You need to kiss the son lest he be angry. God's representative on earth, the Davidic king, is saying, don't rebel against him. Don't rebel against God. Submit to him or you will face his wrath. And once again you're going, boy, I'm here in 2017. What does this have to do with me? Kiss the son? Not literally, okay? Not literally. Kiss the sun, show him honor. And you're asking yourself, right now, Israel is a nation in the Middle East. It has a prime minister named Benjamin Netanyahu, not a king. What are you asking me to do? Kiss the sun. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What are you asking us to do? Does Bill English and the National Party need to form a treaty with Israel that we live under their care and protection? What are, what are we being asked to do here? This takes us to Christ. This takes us to Christ. Remember when I said that Psalm 2 is the most quoted or alluded to psalm in the New Testament? I want us to see just a few usages of this psalm, and it helps us get a picture of what we are to do. In John chapter 1, it is very quickly alluded to that Jesus is the Son of God who comes into the world. Is the quoting of Psalm 89 and Psalm 2. But in John 1, 41, Jesus begins calling his disciples. And Andrew said to Peter, we have found the anointed one, the Messiah. He's quoting, he's alluding to Psalm 2. In verse 49, Nathanael cried out, You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. 
when Jesus was hung on the cross, the inscription above his head mockingly said, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The Romans who meant it mockingly actually spoke truth when they put that inscription above his head. The nations at the cross were raging and plotting against God's anointed one. And that gives us the context for one of the most important usages of Psalm 2 in the New Testament, and that is in Acts chapter 4. And I want to read a few verses from Acts chapter 4. We're going to cover this more fully when we begin our series in Acts very shortly. But verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. Peter and John were arrested by the high priest, the scribes, the Pharisees, the conservatives, the Sadducees, the liberals. Everybody, everybody wanted Peter and John, Jesus' disciples, to be arrested. Verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to your place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and continue and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What, what is this saying? This is saying that the religious system and the government system of Israel, or I should say the ones that were speaking in the name of Israel, had become so corrupt that the leaders were functioning just like the nations in Psalm 2. The nations would have been people like the Romans. And it says the Romans are raging against the Lord and his anointed king, Jesus. But he's saying the Israelite leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, they're all raging against Jesus too. They've become just like the nation. They've become corrupt. Herod, the supposed king wasn't from the line of David. He was a false king. He had no right to be in his throne. And he made sure that Jesus, the true king, had been killed. But this Jesus had risen again. Jesus is the king, therefore, the anointed one. The nations plot against him. And what Peter and John are saying here is that every act of persecution against God's church is an assault on Christ and his kingdom. 
just like it was in the times of David and Solomon and Rehoboam. Every time the nations plot against God's true church, they are making an assault on his kingdom and his king. And it will not stand. It says the Lord laughs and he will reign from Zion and his throne in the new Jerusalem. Jesus came once to save and when he returns he will bring judgment. This psalm, Psalm 2 says that he will break the nations with a rod of iron. That is the picture. That is the context for the warning. We see in Revelation chapter 6, worth reading yourself in your own time, where the nations and kings hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. That's what this is talking about. That's what Psalm 2 is pointing ahead to. David is, yes, speaking of the coronation of the king of Israel. But he's also speaking prophetically. He's speaking prophetically. This king, Jesus Christ, will be given the nations as his inheritance, as the psalm says. And that is why his kingdom is not just the Jews, but also encompasses what would have been called the nations or the Gentiles. Fulfilling the promise made to Abraham in the past, that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The king has a kingdom, and his dominion is to cover all the earth. Jesus is able to have a kingdom that covers all the earth because he is the anointed one. He is the son of God who rules as his father's representative. I want to this real quickly, as with everything I so much out of these psalms. They're so rich with wonderful doctrine. But last week I said that David was the son of God by adoption. God simply chose him to be his son. And he couldn't stop being his son because God had chosen him to be his son. Jesus is the son in this way because he is the only begotten son of God, John tells us. That he is eternally the son of God and he has always been the son of God. And he can't stop being the son of God. There's an unbreakable bond there. But in the other way, we saw that it's possible to be the Son of God by obedience. And Adam was said to be the Son of God by obedience. Luke 3.38 As long as Adam remained obedient to God's law, he was the Son of God, and he had dominion over all the creation. We all know that Adam failed in his role of sonship. He failed to obey God's law and therefore the dominion over the creation was taken from him. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the second Adam who is now able to rule over the kingdom of God and the new creation because he obeyed God's law where Adam failed. Does that make sense? Jesus was the only one who kept God's law perfectly. Everyone else failed. Therefore, Jesus is able to be the Son of God by adoption and the Son of God by obedience. Psalm 1, Psalm 2, we're going to put them together now. 
kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish. This gives us a perfect opportunity to combine these two psalms and to mention the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. There is a warning here. And good news is what is needed to escape this warning. If you read Psalm 1 as being purely about you, you're going to read it and you're going to miss the point. And you're going to read it as if, if I'm good and I keep God's laws, I'll be blessed. That will either drive you to pride in your moralism or despair because none of us have kept God's laws. And I understand that if you're Christian and you've got some good theology going on, you're going to read this and you're going to realize the only way I can be righteous is if God makes me righteous. You're going to read Psalm 1 that way. That's perfectly fine. But we need to look bigger than that. Psalm 1 is the blessed man who delights in the law of God. Blessed man, singular, not plural. Blessed man, singular. Jesus ultimately is the blessed man who delights in the law of the Lord, because he is the only one who keeps it perfectly. Psalm 2 helps us understand Psalm 1. You see, in Psalm 2, it's describing the ideal king, and the ideal king keeps Psalm 1. He is righteous and he judges rightly, and his reward is a kingdom. Because Jesus is the blessed, righteous man who delights in the law of the Lord, he is able to do what Adam could not do, and that is to have dominion over all the earth through his obedience. What does that mean for us then? What does Psalm 2 mean for us? Because Jesus is the blessed, righteous king, the son of God, How do we too become blessed? Look at the last verse of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. True blessing comes from God. True refuge from the judgment of God, which is all throughout Psalm 1 and 2. Judgment of God. True blessing, true refuge from judgment is found in Jesus, the true King. Amen. That is how we read this. And I want to close with Jesus' own words, which is again an allusion to Psalm 2. John five twenty-two to 24 says this. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It's God's word. Let's pray.